Welcome back to Abolish Psych, the podcast where a bunch of communists criticize the mental health industry in the United States. This week, we're discussing Chapter 2 of Psychiatric Hegemony by Bruce M. Z. Cohen. And while I'm not going to repeat the trigger warning from last time, which still holds, this time uh, the episode is especially dense as we're discussing Marxist theory and the history of psychiatry in the United States which necessarily touches on acts of cruelty and violence, misogyny, homophobia, colonialism, and racism. This episode is very long due to the density of content, but you have a pause button, so let's get started. So I am Kali. My pronouns are she, her. This is a chapter about Marxist theory and mental illness where we talk about the development of psychiatry um, and, and the material history of psychiatry and I think this was like when you learn about how cops started and you're like I already knew this was bad but now I feel like sick to my stomach for even participating in this society this was like really difficult for me because my mom has schizophrenia and she's been through ECT and it like was really triggering for me um, when they talk about how ECT was developed and I've I've developed a different understanding of my mom in a way that makes me feel really guilty and ashamed of myself. (laughs) Bethany, she, her. I I felt very similar. So I've also been reading this in conjunction with listening to adult children of emotionally immature parents. And it's been really like just like putting a lens on things for my general interactions with people you know like I see like all the all the little threads now you know Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) my name is Leo Uh, I use he him pronouns because I accidentally did the wrong chapter for the reading this week I think the thing that I found the most interesting from the chapter that I did read was about how the structures the power structures in medicine they reinforce the cons- consumer-driven and power... power power dynamics. Exactly, they they reinforce that domination in another in another area of life. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, that's relevant to this chapter too. River is also here, but they they are not doing the mic today. So River is they, them. Biggest takeaway, always been aware of how materialism is avoided by therapy, which I always took as the therapists are not familiar with it, but it's kind of wild how baked in that avoidance is. Yeah, I totally agree. Like um, there's a lot of purposeful, like cognitive dissonance and dissociating from reality uh, mm-hmm. therapy, I think. Yeah. This is a thing that I've been struggling with, with my therapist where like, I can tell like that she agrees with a lot of the takeaways here. Like she agrees in theory, but then like saying it out loud uh, to her, is just like, no, this week we're talking about historical materialism within the context of psychiatry because of that there's a lot of material here that is pretty dense both in the context of theory and also just kind of systemic violence in general I think for our discussion I'm going to walk through the uh, 
the theory portion or the setup um, in a more didactic way, and then we'll lead more into discussion. And in this chapter, Cohen is mowing back over um, the issue that there's not much academic critique of psychiatry from sociologists and related professions. He talks about there's a fear in, in these professions of being labeled as anti-psychiatry or denying survivor experience or a fear of being denied funding for research or programs for expressing any criticisms. So this leads Cohen to the conclusion that we need Marxist theory, specifically historical materialism, to accurately analyze the structure and practice of the psychiatric system and how it's developed over time, if we're doing that through a lens of social, political, and economic equity. We need to talk a little bit about what historical materialism is and why Marxism is important. So why is Marx's work important in this context? Karl Marx's analysis helps us understand the formation and current structure of fundamental economic and social inequalities and what impact that has on our world. So how we basically experience the world in in a very real way. So why is historical materialism important? So historical materialism is a foundation of communist theory in general. So we're grounding ourselves in the material conditions of life in this world, what's what's really happening to us. Marxism says that the economic relations of humans determine all other relations in society, meaning that the economic system gives us a framework for decision-making behaviors and how we treat each other. And it's our need for survival that drives our human behavior within that system, not like philosophical or spiritual thinking. Um, That's not to say those frameworks aren't helpful, but we develop them in the context of what we need to do to survive. So the foundation of historical materialism is understanding that the, the economic system drives our human interaction. So if we're thinking about it, for example, from a feminist perspective, how capitalism influences and supports and requires the patriarchy and, and how that struggle between the genders, how that gender struggle is within the context of the broader class struggle. So we get into this idea that freedom is a ruse in industrial nations. So as society industrialized, Marx argued that industrial slavery developed as humans were beholden to new ways of working to survive. So the complex social relations and the political and legal systems of capitalism sort of give us that illusion of free will that we have some sort of choice. But Marx said that the mode of production, so basically the nature of work, conditions the general process of social, political, and intellectual life. So basically we have to work to survive um, is, is the basis of this idea. And that means that we are not really truly free because we have to make decisions that optimize our survival. So the mode of production to define it in any period consists of one forces of production. So that can be technologies or materials and two relations of production. So the laws of ownership and relations between the owners and the laborers. So the relations of production determine your social class and status to 
oversimplify it, you have the bourgeoisie, so the owners, and the proletariat are the workers. So the owners own the means of production, which might be factories, offices, or businesses. In capitalism, the means of production are privately owned by the bourgeoisie. Um, and then the workers obviously are dependent on wages from the owners for survival. So what is unique and awful about capitalism? (laughs) (laughs) With the means of production being privately owned, um, the ruling class is then driven to constantly accumulate and maximize profit through a competitive and expanding market for commodities. So just constantly optimizing how much profit they're making by minimizing their costs and maximizing the price that they're selling things for within the context of doing that in competition with other capitalists. Capitalism is marked by a fundamental disparity in the distribution of resources. That disparity is required for capitalism, the disparity being the owning class versus the working class. And of course, there's, you know, even more impoverished classes like the lumpen proletariat. And then within the working class, you have several layers um, that are purposeful to create division and antagonisms within the class structure. So you have like the professional and managerial class, you have frontline managers and so on. But at the end of the day, you basically have the people that own all the stuff and then the people that um, are working and surviving under that. Really, um, the workers are only free to sell their labor to the owners and you might be able to make some choices about how you do that. But at the end of the day, your only choice is really how you're going to sell your labor. Profit is the surplus value of the labor and material costs. So workers generate value for the owners. That value from selling things after subtracting the costs and the wages that are paid to the workers is the surplus value that the owners then keep. So we as workers are only compensated a portion of the value that we create, the rest of which is then kept by the bourgeoisie. And in this way, workers are alienated from what they produce and they're commodified as human beings. So this is a really important and fundamental concept in Marxism that's directly related to mental health. Workers feel objectified and unfulfilled within their day-to-day lives because we're selling our lives, our time, to others to produce stuff that we don't feel connected to or derive any sort of meaning from, or maybe we do in some sort of way, but it's not really something that is our initiative or, or coming from our own creativity. We are doing a job for somebody else. And in turn, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. There's active suppression of wages. There's active raising of prices and that creates the further Uh, division between the classes. So capitalism is a system that by its very nature is a permanent struggle between the workers and the owners. The workers are always going to feel some sort of antagonism with the owning class, though there is some false class solidarity based on, you know, ideology and all of that. There is that fundamental antagonism where somebody basically controls your livelihood because you're working for them. And as a result of that permanent struggle, the workers who do out, outnumber the owners will eventually 
rise up and win power through revolution. Uh, Marx argues that that's inevitable. So in this way, the constant struggle that capitalism creates itself, capitalism creates that seed for its own demise. Capitalist alienation and objectification goes beyond just work. It alienates us from our social environment. So we're supposed to be living communally. Our nervous systems and our bodies developed that way. The natural sociability and communality of the people is displaced by the brutality of lived conditions under capitalism, Cohen says, which is not just industrial slavery, but actually includes violence through systems and through interpersonal conflict due to capitalist relations. So if you think about trauma responses, narcissism, abuse, violence that is created through crimes of trying to survive, that sort of thing, um, that leads us to the crisis of collective chronic trauma of just fighting for survival and living within this isolating system that takes us away from environments that we are supposed to thrive in. And, and one point that isn't really touched on in the book is also alienating us from the actual environment too, from nature and actively destroying nature. <laughs> we are indoctrinated in capitalist society to falsely relate to and accept the ideology of the ruling class. And when we're indoctrinated into this ideology or this way of thinking through institutions like the church laws and the criminal justice system, our schools, media, and our healthcare system. So Cohen then concludes that the practices of the Western healthcare system facilitate capitalist goals through direct and indirect profit accumulation and through social control of deviant populations and ideological reproduction of the dominant norms of the ruling class. So that's a mouthful, but basically the Western healthcare system is supportive of capitalism and ultimately bends to the rules of the ruling class. So in this chapter, we're going to walk through the history of psychiatry's development, including how treatments evolved over time. So before we move on, move on, does anyone have any questions or comments on sort of the fundamental theory of Marxism and how and historical materialism and how that relates to psychiatry? No. I think the only thing I want to say is that was an excellent summary on your part, colleague. Thank you so much. <laughs> I like having you around. <laughs> so River says that honest Buddhist monasteries are a decent example of e economy dictating interaction. Even if you commit your monastery wholly to spiritual pursuit, you still rely on donations and have to include outside participation in the monastery, even if your tradition is historically isolationist. Economy requiring a monastery to treat Buddhist practice as an economic exchange. A lot of historical practices and meditation have declined as a result of more saleable ones, which is a like 2,500 year old institution bending to capitalism. Go There's ahead. a few monasteries near me in Oklahoma City because we have a large Vietnamese population. They're all, all always looking for donations. The land that they have, have was gifted to them, but like they still have to pay the taxes on it because the person that gifted to them probably is dead. The biggest way that they get donations is by having pay what you can classes, like, you know, pay what you can for a donation for like a class on how to cook something or like classes on 
Buddhism, you know, like you come to meditation, but then you also come to the class after. And like River was saying, it's just an, another example of this. And it's just really disappointing. Like, because mm-hmm. like every time you go, it feels like they're like, you know, looking for donations and emails, you know, like reminding you about events. It's reminding you about donations. And it's just like, why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, River says they would never want to teach a cooking class as a Buddhist. But if it brought in people to pay what they could, I would teach one. <laughs> the next section of this chapter, we talk about medicine in general and in mental health. And just kind of like as a segue into that chapter, do we want to talk a little bit about how work impacts our mental health? Yeah, we can. Go ahead. With the increase of rent and everything, and with our increasingly stagnant wages that the Biden administration is trying to increase with their whole, what is it called? The inflation plan? Stimulus, maybe? Yeah, like the whole like stimulus where their whole logic is, oh, well, we need to get workers' wages down to help the economy. And it's like, right, but you have all kinds of people out here working easily 50 hours a week. And anything over I think like 45 or 48 hours on a regular basis starts not just impacting your mental health but it also starts impacting your physical health so if it's impacting your physical health which usually takes longer to be impacted how long are people struggling mentally before just cracking and it's just really frustrating to see so many people like well if you just work harder yeah I mean that's exactly right I at one point in my life, I had four jobs and was in two master's programs at once. And I just felt like I was going to, like, I felt like I was literally going insane, just trying to fight for my survival while going to school. That's ridiculous. In general, people do feel that way. People are driven to work multiple jobs now. It's a pretty normal thing. It's really stressful. We're driven to produce as much as possible for as little as possible, as fast as possible. And that applies in many different contexts. And on the flip side, there's many jobs that you take and then you're doing sort of like menial tasks, even though you're trained to, you know, you took a job that had a completely different description and you're trained to do something completely different. And that feels very isolating and depressing because you need to still do that job to survive and you're not feeling like you're contributing to your community or connecting with people. Absolutely. I think the, uh, the advent of hustle culture, it's probably been one of the most effective tools that business owner class and uh, capitalist class has invented over the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so. This idea that If you have nothing to your name, you know, if you work hard enough that you can do anything without realizing that there are structural systemic obstacles in your way that are put there specifically to keep that from happening. Yeah, this is a trend that I've been noticing a disturbing amount is like people that are quote unquote mental health advocates that are promoting very individualistic things. Like if this person doesn't do this and if this person doesn't do this, then, you know, they're just unworthy of you and like all this stuff. And it's like, I mean, maybe they don't need to be this one specific thing in your life, but that doesn't mean that they're unworthy of you. Like they're all a human. Like that just means that like 
you don't fit but like they say that the same they say that in the same context of like well if you're you know if you're not making enough money like if you're still struggling financially where is your side hustle or why is your side hustle not doing better yeah river says even when work is impacting you positively it takes such a larger slice of time in your life that your private time and relationships necessarily suffer either by comparison or just because you don't have time for it and then, Hey, fix your mental health for fun and profit. <laughs> yeah. But that's, right. that's absolutely true. And Bethany, what you're saying is true too. Like not to get on a tangent, but like, <laughs> you know, like I, I feel like it just, it does impact your interpersonal relationship so deeply because you're kind of forced to pick, you know, a very small amount of people that you spend your time with just like, because of what you're saying, because of what Rivers thing. And then it's like, you have to have some sort of guidelines for who fits in your life and what they mean to you and all of that. And it's just like, it drives you insane. Right. And it makes, and it makes you like value people differently. And like, it drives this cu- culture of hyper competition. And like, it's just, okay. Um, so in this chat, in this section of the chapter, we started talking about like medicine under capitalism and how the priorities of the ruling class are still favoring or are still favored in the healthcare system and developments in the system are really driven by a need for a healthier and more reliable workforce. Concerns for public health really do peak during war times. Medical research as a whole actually prioritizes like lifestyle and cosmetic treatments. Work relations are replicated under the hierarchy of medicine, um, the highest wage consultants making most of the decisions and then passing down those decisions through a hierarchy of uh, managers and administrators all the way down to, you know, the frontline workers who don't really have the decision-making power. And then the health system ultimately functions as an institution of social control, reinforcing the dominant values, norms of capitalism through surveillance of the population and labeling. Illness itself is viewed negatively and as something to be eradicated or contained. So this is something that uh, we would never, we never talk about in, in capitalist culture is just like, while we generally agree that, you know, cancer is bad, there's a moral judgment on the fact that illness is bad. Like illness isn't necessary. It just is. Illness just is. But we put a valuation on it because we want to be healthy, but that sort of mindset of good and bad carries over into mental health, which creates like a policing function of the health professions to label it medicalized social deviance as illness. And that capitulates to these ideological prerogatives of capitalism and the ideals of capitalism being held as natural and common sense, even when they very clearly are not because we are pack animals. And I don't know, I I spend a lot of time sitting alone at my desk. (laughs) Does anybody have any stories from your own experiences where you like witnessed or, or things that you've witnessed related to diagnoses that may just be natural responses to living in capitalism. Whenever I left a toxic job in 2020, I didn't really realize how much of that job was impacting my mental health. I thought I was having cannabis withdrawals, which everybody was like, 
that's not a thing. And I'm like, okay, but like every single day I come home and I have anxiety poops. I didn't think it was anxiety poops because it was like, it happened at the same time, like clockwork, unless I took an edible at like three o'clock. I quit and within like two days that didn't happen anymore. And I was like, oh, my doctor had been telling me that like, I was just so majorly depressed and you know, like all this stuff, which like I was, but like, she was saying I have chronic depression and all this stuff, which like, sure. But like, also I live in a hyper individualistic state and country. Of course I'm perpetually depressed. A minute ago, whenever you were talking about how everything is pathologized and like, you know, they just want like a cure for everything. I was reminded of the newest Resident Evil that's on Netflix where, have you ever seen any of the Resident Evil franchises? I have. Like zombie virus man-made zombie virus spreads all over and creates like a whole massive pandemic this one started off because they made this antidepressant called happy that's supposed to cure literally everything but the way that it worked was they used a smaller dose of that virus to activate something in your brain and the ceo of the company didn't care that you know at, at higher doses it has side effects of like you know eating brains She's like, but sure, like, well, then we just make sure that people don't take this higher dose. It's fine. It's, this is like a trillion dollar drug. It's okay. Like, I don't think that they intended it to be necessarily be a criticism of the pharmaceutical industry in this kind of way, but just like watching that and coupled with reading that other book and reading this has just been like, really just the shit is like everywhere all the time. What about like, I know Bethany, you were talking about this the other day. What about narcissism? Does anybody have any hot takes on all of the pop psychology around narcissism? I grew up thinking I had narcissism really, really bad. And when I look back at it, I'm just like, okay, me becoming like really hyper self-interested and like really blowing my importance out of proportion over other people was really just kind of a natural adaptation to what you see as being profitable in terms of personality development under capitalism. Mm. Narcissism makes a lot of sense to develop as like a identity. If all the people you're looking at as like models of success in your society are exhibiting those same traits. I think uh, a few years ago, I used to work at a factory. I was a maintenance technician. I was um, basically repairing printing presses on the uh, night shift and it was 12 hour shifts from 10 at night to 10 in the morning, seven days a week and sometimes on holidays. And I just went with it because I, at the time I, you know, subscribed to hustle culture of course. I, I developed a sleep disorder. I developed back problems. And when I went to the doctor, my, my doctor wasn't concerned with the fact that obviously my job was causing these issues. He just wrote me up a prescription for a couple medications. That way I can be back to productivity in no time. Mm. It didn't take me or it took me a few years to realize that he wasn't trying to solve the problem. He never said anything about, you know, maybe I should take some time off of work or even, you know, maybe I should look for a new line of work because this one was literally killing me. But his solution was the one that would elicit the most productivity out of me. That realization just sent shockwaves when I realized that I'm obviously not the only person that this has happened to. And so much of medicine nowadays is not designed 
to treat or fix the issues that we have, but it's to get us back to producing. Yeah, River says, it's like, what can medicine really offer you when your material conditions are the cause of your illness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that everyone's saying, like what River said earlier, thanks for hopping on the mic. I think that narcissistic traits are just present in our society because we have to lean into the ego and market ourselves to be well like in the labor market so we make more money even just like in our day-to-day lives we cannot and this is not a slight at any individual person who might be listening to this we cannot count on the people around us to we have to we have to look out for number one right like have to take care of ourselves heavily even when we feel like we can't because we cannot count on a single person to actually step in sometimes people do and that is nice and an act of kindness of them but everybody has their own pile of shit they're dealing with from work and trauma and like just living in the society that that's grace that's going out of their you know somebody's way to help you out so we cannot count on community care we have to rely on self-care and that's unique to our society. So the only way to ensure community care is if we're like definitely manipulating other people to like us. And that is just like a characteristic of our society. Um, So people do become narcissistic. Now, some people take it to extremes, obviously, but I think that leaning into ego is very much encouraged in capitalism. Absolutely. So on that, on the narcissism topic, I have been listening, like I said a minute ago, I've been listening to adult children of emotionally immature parents. And while it has been really revelatory about my relationship with my parents, specifically with my dad, it's also been really revelatory about relationships with like just all kinds of other people that I have. And all the traits that she talks about in emotionally immature parents are overwhelmingly traits that are attributed to people that are narcissistic. And it all stems from just childhood emotional neglect, basically, which is largely what is discussed whenever narcissism is discussed is that you were emotionally neglected as a child. So like you had to fend for yourself and it's like, well, why did I have to fend for myself as a child? Well, but probably because I had a very selfish parent. Well, why were they selfish? So like, it makes you look more at the whole person and like their situation. So I'm kind of irritated now with how narcissism is like such a hot topic when I'm like, you know, what really should be being discussed is how emotionally immature so many people in our society are. So many people in our society are just like stunted as like a six-year-old emotionally. Yeah. Have you ever like tried to talk about your feelings with another person? (laughs) (laughs) Someone that you don't uh, have to pay money to? Oh, no. God, I couldn't imagine that. I genuinely don't know if you're joking. Only in the, like, way that I'm joking in a very real context. (laughs) Right. I mean, there's an entire podcast that can be made out of that joke. Yeah, maybe it's this one. (laughs) (laughs) 
River said, plus in a power vertical society, narcissism is more harmful to individuals and communities, whereas in a more horizontally equal society, narcissism has fewer positions of disproportionate power through which to do harm. Yeah, that's true. It's like sociopathic tendencies, psychopathic tendencies, all of that is rewarded in the social climbing that is required to get to the next level. It's pretty fucked up. Emotion regulation, I think, is important, but we we almost over-regulate our emotions. And I think, you know, I've struggled with, so I do have, like, I'm, I'm on the autism spectrum, so I have, like, meltdowns once in a while. I, you know, I do have chronic trauma. So I have been over emotional a lot of the times in my life, but now I'm like kind of reaching a balance, I think, where it's like, I think it's perfectly acceptable to have feelings and I'm going to tell you what they are. (laughs) Like whether you like it or not, like if you're making me feel a certain way, especially if it's bad, I'm going to tell somebody that, you know, um, I think that's totally fine. And I think that makes people really uncomfortable. Back to like the basic question though, about like diagnoses and like being pathologized. I think like complex trauma and like PTSD and like sometimes like people get diagnosed with like borderline or like other various mood disorders when in reality, like it's, I think a lot of the the feelings that are experienced are pretty valid. Like, I don't know, like maybe I do just have a lot of trauma responses. And I am a really fucked up person, but I don't think that's true. Like, <laughs> you know, I think that it is a reality that we need to be hypervigilant when we are surrounded by danger and our survival is in constant question, right? <laughs> sure. Right. It's like how women are always being told that we're being bitchy and everything. And we're like, well, there's probably a reason that I'm being cautious and bitchy to you because like, I can't be sure that you're not going to be one of these awful people that has treated me like this before. So I'm just like automatically like hackled up. Sorry. Exactly. Not sorry. exactly. It is what it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Growing up as a man in the South, I don't want to be all uh you know but please somebody think of the men i i I don't want to come off like that at all but being raised as a man in the south you know it's not a part of what i was taught to be able to express feelings or even to be able to feel them i was very much taught from a young age feelings are for girls and that i need to have a strong uh a stiff upper lip despite the fact that i've known that that's not correct for years now it's something that i still struggle with i've been going to a therapist for the past couple months and i struggle to talk to her too because i'm trying my best to you know sort through what i'm feeling and then elocute that to somebody that i am paying so i'm not exactly entirely sure how to go about the whole therapy process and you're like this is brand new concept to me exactly i mean you know even around male friends it's just not a thing for us to talk about what we're feeling unless it's a very i guess strong emotion and there's a significant amount of alcohol involved. Mm-hmm. Like somebody died. Exactly. <laughs> now it's okay to have feelings. Yeah. My da- whenever my grandma died, my dad was at her funeral playing games on his phone so that he wouldn't cry at the funeral. 
And I was just sitting there like, Jesus fucking Christ, toxic masculinity is such a fuck. I'm glad that you brought this up, Leo, though, because I'm about to drop one of the perpetual hot takes of a communist woman. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, I love this part. (laughs) I think somebody does need to start thinking about the men in a compassionate way, because I I think with any sort of identity lens and not to say having an identity lens is bad, it's helpful to an extent, but I think that in the liberal idea of it, it's very antagonistic and divisive and it further isolates people. It further, like, so if we're talking in the context of feminism, like further creates a division between like gender relations I don't know why, but I still like men. <laughs> I hang out, like I almost exclusively hang out with men and I see it. It's They're all just like, I have to wait till one of them gets mad about something. Cause like, that's the only feeling that men are allowed to have to like understand how they're feeling. You know what I mean? It's right. like really pretty fucked up. <laughs> Anger is one of our very first emotions. So it's a very like basic thing to know how to express. And then also like there's the whole anger is the only emotion that men are allowed to express. But like mm-hmm. that, like I've had a really bad anger problem for most of my life. Um, and I am definitely still a hothead, but I'm like going through therapy and like working on like childhood traumas. And like things like that makes me better able to see my own anger and see like the other emotions that I should be dealing with rather than just like rage. Like not that I don't have like righteous rage on a regular basis, but just everything under the sun infuriating me to unhealthy degrees is is a very early memory for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very true for men, like where, um, you know, they they're like well this is the only thing I was ever allowed to do as a like as a little boy what else is there I do think it's like important to note that while the patriarchy is cross-cultural I don't see it to the same extent in any group of people as much as this white men I like I see people from other countries are um, like more able to express positive feelings about people you know what I mean that feel good <laughs> how men from other countries are usually very happy to express like these more quote-unquote feminine ways of expressing expressing their happiness just to be with you and just to, like be near you I have never experienced that with an American man ever in my life that might say something about me, but like, if that does say something about me, about someone that has been more emotionally aware of things, more of my life than a lot of other people, what does that say about everyone else? I used to date a man from Iran and he was just always just so incredibly affectionate to the point that it was just jarring to me as, you know, a young 18, 19 year old kid. But now like looking back nearly 20 years later I'm like oh I'm just so used to this super isolated way of responding to people within like American society where we're like not physically or even verbally affectionate with each other like all the time totally a foreign concept yeah Mm -hmm. then it's like weird if you say something nice to somebody and people are like whoa (laughs) 
what are like, what, what are you trying to do here? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Be nice to you. Like I used to have this friend that I like had sex with, you know, but I I wasn't like trying to be his girlfriend or, or anything, but I would do a nice thing for him every once in a while. And he'd be like, whoa, (laughs) I mean, like, I, dude, I, I like spending time with you. I like, I don't like, I think you like spending time with me because you spend a lot of time with me. So I got you this thing. It's not a big deal. (laughs) Right. It's like, I spent $5 getting you a thing. It's not like, it's just, it's pocket change. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Can I make you some chili? No. Okay. <laughs> like I just brought you a thing because like I just like pebbling. Like, wait a second, I'm not the weird one here. You're the weird one for thinking it's weird. Which is a perfect segue <laughs> to talking about how side professions make moral judgment on individual behaviors. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, like who says that that's weird? Why is it weird if I do nice things for you? You're fucking weirdo. <laughs> like, I'm sorry that I like you and think you're cool. <laughs> I'll be meaner next time. <laughs> Normalize doing nice things for people just to be nice sometimes. Yeah. Next time I'll beat you up instead of buying you a gift. How's that? <laughs> so like they do that too. They make this moral judgment on what's good and bad behavior, like trauma responses, like hypervigilance, that's bad behavior, but it's like, okay, well, I also don't want to be treated like shit. And you're telling me to set up boundaries. So like, which is, I don't know, but there's good behavior and bad behavior. And they do like do this under like a scientific facade, uh, which we talked about a lot last time. The example we gave, or one example we gave was homosexuality and how that was a quote-unquote mental illness until they just decided it wasn't. Um, But other examples in this chapter given are agoraphobia and divorce. And then by labeling and pathologizing behaviors like this, experts further alienate people who are suffering and who want to think creatively about social transformation. And they do this through depoliticizing and individualizing. This happened with my therapist the other day. And I, I like my therapist. I think she trends more radical and like is cool but she she also when I started talking about stuff is like well the way that you're talking about this sounds like a trauma response I'm like yeah no no fucking shit (laughs) no fucking shit (laughs) it's still but it was like you know uh, from a political lens about just like how garbage this country is so there's social control with labeling people as mentally ill and that serves market mechanisms including profiteering from individual treatments and services or reinforcing standards for like work and family relations how to be a good wife or spouse or whatever to keep your nuclear family together and manage your household economics and as well how to be a good employee. And so as we industrialized, we saw like a sort of segregation of populations that were considered good to go with selling their labor to the ownership class. And then so like the abled quote unquote people, and then like the non-abled people or the unhealthy people or the social deviant people. So as part of that segregation, that's when asylum started being created. Does anybody else have a story about being depoliticized in their therapy conversations? Yeah. So my last therapist, so I ended up leaving her. I had started my toxic job that I was, that I left in 2020 
I started it and I found out after a couple months when I was still a temp that they, so the family is Jewish and one of the sons of one of the executives currently and still lives in Israel, grew up in the U.S., but he lives in Israel and is obviously a member of the IDF because he's trying, you can't just go willy-nilly without serving uh, like your two years or whatever. So whenever I found out about that, I was having like a really big moral crisis, like where I was like, I'm working for people that are literally have family members partaking in the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Like, how can I be okay with this? And she's like, well, you know, if there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, like there's also no ethical unemployment employment so like why are you feeling bad about this and I was like it still feels like a major violation of my ethics and like my morals like this is a big part of who I am is taking a hard stance on Palestine and like things like that and she's just like well you know but like you have to have a job somewhere I didn't have to have a job immediately I could have waited but like she was just like you you never know what else is going to be out there that might be worse I'm like yeah I mean I guess I could go work for one of the oil companies and that would arguably be objectively much worse at the same time i'm still enabling this murderous colonial state so like how can i be okay with that and then it that just was a harbinger of things to come sure yeah i got that too when i was working at um rose caucus and um the um pandemic hit and then i like we set up a rent strike 2020 really quick just every day we were getting inundated with people Um, with emails from people just being like really personal, like this is my situation. Is there anything you can do to help? And we weren't set up for that. And so I was talking to my therapist about it and just being like, it just feels like absolute shit all the time to not be able to point these people in like a good direction or to give them answers or to be able to provide any material assistance. And she seemed was pretty radical too for a therapist and just had this whole, well, can't you just like compartmentalize when you get off work um versus when you're there and just be professional about these people's requests and it's like it just it doesn't work like that there's yeah that actually does anybody have like examples of the mental health system and the workplace um so i know that's really broad but like the interaction of the two and like how behavior is pathologized to make you a better worker Last year, I asked for an accommodation at my current employer, and one of the executives was like, no, we can't accommodate you for that, because then if we have to accommodate you, we have to start, like, doing whatever for everyone, and, like, I had a literal ADA request. Not even five minutes into this conversation, she's like, okay, so this attitude ends now, ends when we leave this room. I didn't have an attitude. Like, I was being firm and setting my expectations and just like being firm about it I just instantly started crying and she's like okay well this is a lot and I'm like you know I've been told this my entire life is like me like expressing how I feel and expressing like whatever is being told that I have an attitude and that like I need to adjust that and like it's a me problem when it's not like I'm just telling you how something makes me feel and I'm just trying to communicate with you as a regular fucking human I'm sorry that happened that's all we're better now so <laughs> that's good. I'm like, glad. I, I like I almost went to the EEOC over it and I was like, okay, let me see how this works out and like give it a little bit of time because you have you have a specific amount of time after incidents to report it to the EEOC. So I was like, okay, let me just sit on this for a little bit and see how things play out. And it's 
worked out okay since then but like I will never ever ever forget that and like let that leave my brain but like she said that to me about me just communicating things yeah like people if you say something people don't like it's always like something's wrong with you I feel like I'm perpetually misinterpreted and I don't know if it's like just people's trauma responses or if I'm a bad communicator or something but it's like if I like set some sort of boundary or like say I don't like something or express myself in some way or even like actually getting emotional like crying like you said Bethany like I can't help it I'm like cry baby (laughs) I cry when I'm overwhelmed but like people like what's wrong with you and I'm like I don't know man (laughs) I usually start crying if I'm really mad River says when I was apprenticing under my stepdad it got to the point where I was working as a sole project manager and handyman and trainer I was making ten dollars an hour for all that and felt like shit all the time but whenever I expressed my feeling exploited by my family it was always well this will prepare you to deal with customers better when you're on your own And you're shooting yourself in the foot by not appreciating that. I would get home from work with heat stroke, crawl into the ice chest and just ball and ball. And gaslighting on top of that. Wow. Yeah, it's like the perpetual gaslighting of capitalism. Like when uh, COVID started, like the company I was working for at the time was like, oh, here's all these like mental health resources. (laughs) And then like never talk about it again or like they start like a chat you know and then you're supposed to chat about it but nobody's gonna like I don't want to chat about my mental health like (laughs) I just want to take some time off and like help my community out please I don't want to chat about my mental health with people that I am not friends with do I want to talk about my deepest emotions with people that I barely know no thank you this next section industrialization and the mad doctors psychiatry has always sought to gain control uh, of undesirable behavior and populations. And so it was started as a profession by Philippe Pinel's Unchaining of the Mad in 1793, where the insane, quote unquote, were seen as humans that were need uh, in need of therapeutic intervention for the first time. So this moral therapy approach was seen as a humanitarian advance. Pinnell suggested that trauma was at the root of disturbed behavior. This idea that like being trauma informed is a new thing is not true. Like that has always been the case. It's just like we have been still exerting more drama on people, but whatever. So I think also that there's been a really big push for a while to ignore that that reality uh like you know for say probably 50 something years where it's like well it's not really traumatic like you're just being a little bit dramatic yeah you just have a mood disorder Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay so Pinnell was saying that um through moral means the disturbed behavior could be corrected to return people to quote unquote rationality that theory and that way of thinking is still is still like what trauma-informed therapy does and I think like as I was reading through this I was challenging it through my head in my head like I don't know once you experience something your perspective changes like it always does like as we have experiences we learn it's when you put your hand on a burner you know that that's gonna hurt you so you're going to avoid the burner and if somebody comes at you with a burner that's on you're gonna like scream at them and tell them like what the fuck dude and like (laughs) I don't like that. Like, stop coming at me. Go away. (laughs) I don't think that like having a trauma response is necessarily a bad thing. 
It's your brain literally protecting you from having the same shit happen again where it's like, no, I know this game. Yeah, like I'm not playing this game with you. (laughs) I mean, if your brain learns that pain follows either this behavior or this action, you know, whether it's mental or physical, if, if it recognizes a pattern, then it's going to look for that pattern in the future. It's, it's an evolutionary mm-hmm. response. One really fucked up thing that Pinnell said was that successful treatment depended on employing psychological terror and fear to gain compliance. The seed of psychiatry was like, we want people to be compliant and we have to put the fear of God into them. Oh, hell. Uh, so, yeah, that's within the context of capitulating to capitalism and producing workers. So over the course of the 19th century, There was like a large asylum system of mass incarceration. There was street sweeping to incarcerate poor people, disabled people, homeless people in asylums. And that was under like this guise that it was care and treatment. They were like performing work tasks to, it was presented as like an alternative to traditional incarceration. But the reality was there was like no actual improvement the only the only thing that could be proven to work was the fear of incarceration one thing that we've touched on a little bit is the patriarchy how does psychiatry reinforce the patriarchy with pathologizing women and our responses to anything that men and those in power do it's like how how we discussed with chapter one that hysteria was a big thing for a while you know and it was just like how dare women be horny basically and they like didn't they literally didn't even understand the concept of women like wanting sex and like needing that kind of release and they're just like I don't they must just be crazy so like the same thing with like all the new quote-unquote women's disorders like PMDD and things like that, which like, I know that PMDD is a real problem for people because they have these hormonal swings, but rather than treating the, like the way that women respond to these hormonal swings, why not try and figure out how to better regulate that hormonal swing rather than just like give her a sedative or an antidepressant all all month long be like, okay, well, we need to figure out why your hormones are so wildly out of whack that it's causing you suicidal ideation and like these drastic physical changes. And then like within a few days, you're fine. Yeah. Like everything you said, totally agree with and there's all these disorders that are like highly way more quote-unquote prevalent or like labeled on women like including bipolar disorder borderline personality disorder to your point about like the women being horny thing there was a long period of time where like in these like asylums they would give women hand jobs to like treat their masturbatory illness for like women that sought sexual pleasure pleasure either through masturbating or like even extramarital and then like that's so the vibrator was developed as a medical device well and then also for a while they were even doing a medicalized version of fgm on women and girls that were considered sexual deviant where they would remove the clitoral hood Mm -hmm. um everybody acts like western society is so far beyond that like that was happening up until like i think the 50s or the 60s Jesus christ <laughs> like western society is no better than anywhere else and anyone that tells you otherwise is lying or just like naive 
I think so. I think we touched on a lot of the points, but like in the chapter that uh, Cohen talks about, psychiatry is like pro eugenics. Um, so for a long time, I advocated for forced sterilization of people labeled mad, and that was largely people who were working class and lower classes um, were a part of that. Also, labeling so like that was like a you know a eugenic effort to get a quote unquote, better workforce. And then labeling middle-class women as mentally ill is incredibly profitable because then we're in therapy and like paying for these treatments in perpetuity forever. So women who- paying for drugs whenever we're like, well, I just don't understand why I'm so sad. And of course we're overwhelmingly the ones that go to therapy and go and like say like, I'm feeling sad because like we are generally more in tune with our emotions instead of addressing the problem. They're just like, well, here's here. Fuck being sad. Here's your drugs. Mm -hmm. As you said too before, like uh, women like historically who deviated from their roles as wives, mothers, homemakers were then labeled as hysterical or like nymphomaniacs or whatever. Uh, when they had feelings or, you know, a sex drive. River says every male therapist I've had has advocated for far more stoic approaches to and with sexuality. Whenever I've brought up being promiscuous with therapists, there's either, oh, well, you don't need to worry about that. You're a man or you should really direct that sexual energy into productive pursuit. Oh, yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll second that. Uh, I've had the same experience. Which is really funny because like, I've been told in therapy and like by others in my life that like whenever I was promiscuous, it was a sign that I had daddy issues and I'm like, or maybe I'm just like 20 and just fucking horny. I just want to see what shit is like, <laughs> especially if River said deep trauma, <laughs> <laughs> but like, especially like, because I grew up in such a fundamentalist patriarchal culture being able to do whatever I wanted with my body was like such a foreign concept that I was like "Mm, okay but why why can't I like go fuck whoever I want like all of y'all are hitting like excellent points right now you're such a good cheerleader (laughs) (laughs) thank you I I I appreciate my role we appreciate a good cheerleader (laughs) the next section is really like the most horrifying things ever um oh no so before we start does anyone want to share any personal experiences with treatments like ect or other quote-unquote alternative or like heavy treatments or whatever we're calling them um these days or hospitalization i know that's like a big umbrella but like just anything that came up for you this is trauma dump hour (laughs) I have actually managed to avoid being hospitalized or having like any of the more drastic treatments. I think just because I've always been an internalizer, I had been told a few times that like everything was just a me problem. So like I would just internalize everything and be like, okay, well, I got to figure this out because I'm not crazy. Something is up, but like, I have to figure this out on my own because nobody else will help me and nobody else will listen to me. And they're just going to call me crazy again. I guess I wanted to share a little bit about my experience with my mom. So growing up, my mom had, she was a little eccentric looking back. I wonder if maybe she was like a little on the spectrum or something. Certainly she had some sort of traumas related to growing up in the fundamentalist environment that she was in for the most part, like she was 
very smart and she was a social worker herself and like really good at her job and won awards and stuff. When I was in seventh grade, she was working at a suicide hotline overnight and was taking a lot of Ambien because she couldn't sleep and developed an overdose over time from the amount of Ambien she was taking on a regular basis. So she was developing psychosis through that and had a psychotic break and was never really the same after that. But when I was like, she was still like, I don't know, she could work at Ace Hardware. She could like kind of drive a car. She could like participate in social groups to an extent. When I was probably 18 or 19 years old, she was in the hospital for like 30 days because she was having a particularly bad episode and she went through ECT treatment, which we thought was helpful. This section, they talk about how ECT treatment and other treatments are helpful because they cause brain damage and make people calmer and like in recent years like she's just kind of like completely out of it you know and like she's not to my knowledge and I don't really talk to her much anymore to my knowledge she's not really having the same types of sort of erratic over the top like there's like yelling and maybe a little violence involved episodes she just has kind of like this ongoing delusional manipulative sort of behavior and like way of talking and she talks about the same things over and over again and like sends me notes about like corn casserole but like doesn't make any sense and she has mentioned to me on the phone within the past year that she thinks she has a mental disability but like not schizophrenia like she like she phrased it using the r word which I'm not gonna say but like that was her words. It makes me feel so bad to think about, you know, I was a kid. I didn't really have much say on whether or not they did the ECT. The thought that I had, all these thoughts that I've had over time over my mom, when like, they basically like shocked her into being just like, not even being able to like be herself at all. Mm-hmm. Sure. I can understand that. That must've been I don't know, a jarring experience. What's really frustrating for me with that is that I've recently read some various side professionals saying that this electroconvulsive therapy isn't like what it was in the 50s, you know, like 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, like now they like it's a lot kinder, you know, they put you under and like they use lower doses and that's not, it, they don't do it for as long. So there's not it's nothing like it was, you know, like where you would lose your entire memory for, say, like eight weeks or more at a time and then like you might like you'd eventually come back to yourself knowing who people were oh okay so like it's only like two weeks where you have no memory if you were to say that outside of a mental health context if you were to describe this to someone without the context of what you were doing they would be absolutely horrified mm-hmm. it would just be like you're doing what to a a live human why Dear God, why? Because they they were crying? <laughs> like I could have swore this was a war crime, but you're telling me that this is doctor recommended? <laughs> My uncle that I've talked about before that was misdiagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic for around 10 years. At one point, the, the psychiatrist that he was seeing in Mississippi 
was saying that was the only thing that would make him any better. His brother, thankfully, who is a piece of shit, but, you know, broken clock right once a day and all that shit. Um, right. He was like, absolutely not. And he was absolutely opposed to it. And at the time I was, you know, ECT isn't like what it used to be. It's a lot better. And now like read, even reading this, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> like this is absolutely horrifying. And I cannot believe that anyone still pushes this as a valid treatment and then thinks that it's fine. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. my current therapist left her pre she had a job at a one of the local hospitals and she actually left because they did ECT and a couple of other highly questionable practices that she was like I am not okay with this River says Ambien's no joke for that too took a bunch of Adderall and Ambien once and have never felt so out of control of my mind can only imagine that over time and connected to other problems and that's true like we talked about last time with the antidepressants causing suicidal thoughts like they give us this medicine that makes us worse Mm -hmm. I mean if somebody's listening and these medicines have helped you great I take Adderall by myself and like, I need it like to get through the day usually, but like, I'm trying to take less of it because it does make me more aggressive. River says ECT has a handful of severe depression cases that met with wild success and proponents will never stop talking about them combined with all the soft caveats Bethany mentioned. And that's the thing too, is like some of this stuff, like people do feel improved but there's a lot of caveats behind it mm-hmm. and some people is the people that are materially benefited from it in a long-term way rather than just like a short-term way are so insignificant that like yes it has an application but it should be much more controlled than it is now instead of just like oh you're sad here's you know some pills to go take which like, I understand like if somebody is actively in crisis and you're wanting to keep them from dying, but maybe we should, I don't know, do things so that people don't reach that point. The last time that I was, I, I was originally prescribed antidepressants like in grade school and I took them all the way up until like senior year. And, you know, I can barely remember those years. Yeah. I recently, like in the last eight months, I got prescribed them again. After like a week of taking them, I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. For one thing, like the fatigue for me is just, I just can't get over it. But the worst part of um, what I was taking, which was, or which is escitalopram, is that it, there's this general feeling of just emptiness. Sure. I, I don't, feel like I want to die, but I don't feel like I'm actually alive anymore either. It cuts out the highs and the lows. You just feel very numb. Exactly. And that's why um, when I was in high school, my mom got me on Wellbutrin and I stopped it after like a month because I was like, I just feel like nothing. And I remember my mom saying more than once, well, you were actually really pleasant to be around. And I'm just like, Huh. Like looking back on this now, like over 20 years later, I'm like, wow. River says, I wonder if there's a socioeconomic component behind success cases. Like if you can take eight weeks off while you recover and fully see the effects, I imagine that affects a lot maybe. And thus, and then also same as Leo, different meds with similar experience. 
I always have to modify my meds when I use them so that their half-lives are less than a day. Useful for feeling nothing when what I'm feeling is dangerous, but not so long lasting as to numb. Even when I wasn't at work, it was very like it just sort of like robbed me of any bit of humanity in me. And off of work, I did literally nothing. I just laid down and went to sleep. Normally in that time, I like to go rock climbing walking around, uh, try out different restaurants in the area. I like to go out and do things, but yeah, I could, I couldn't, I didn't want to do anything. River says totally. I didn't mean to say, well, this was useful for me, but rather to highlight the links I have to go to in order for them to work. Yeah. I identify with that too. I don't think there's anything wrong. I don't know. It, there's nothing wrong with any of it, but like if I'm prescribed anxiety medication or, you know, Adderall or like sleep medication or whatever to take that, like when I feel like I really do need it, like I need something to help me calm down from a panic attack or whatever. That's totally fine for people to do. It's just like to understand the impact that this medicine has. And it's like very serious and it's prescribed like candy. Absolutely. River had said about the socioeconomic stuff earlier. Cohen talks about a class nature to treatment in general and the growth of the institution. So like private clinics and practices were established basically for middle-class clients. And then there were publicly funded asylums built for the working and impoverished classes. So private practice, what those groups did was individualize social problems of industrial society as various neuroses. So it was labeling them as these neuroses, which was especially helpful to reinforce roles of middle-class women. And you see that trend continue, Bethany, as you were mentioning earlier, that uh, women are more likely to go seek treatment for being sad or whatever. And then lower class families at the time Um, If they were substantially burdened by a person who was economically dependent or acting out or doing behaviors that were not conducive for the survival of the rest of the household within capitalism and industrialization, um, they would then be prone to committing them, those family members to the asylum. And so what are some other class characteristics for diagnosis and treatment today? I don't know about characteristics, but I, uh, I've been noticing a trend of how the um, percentage rises, percentages of people on medications and seeking psychiatric help have increased along the same lines as that of the prison population and around the same time as the introduction of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. I love this for us as like a species. Super cool. Absolutely. If, if I could just piggyback off of what you just said right there, because that was a great point that you brought up. I think I read something not too long ago. I believe it said something along the lines of 60% of people that are murdered by police are suffering from some sort of mental disability. Yes. I don't know about that exact percentage, but I would say that over 50% is a accurate percentage of what I have just like witnessed, like statistically within like seeing police murders. 
because I refuse mm-hmm. to call them police killings anymore. I'm like, no, they're act- they're actively murders. Absolutely. There's this book, Crazy in America, and it, it would be a good one to read even like as this podcast or just for anybody listening because it gives some case studies of like examples like that where somebody's having like a mental health episode where they're having psychosis and and then they get killed by a cop because because they called you know like either they or a family member or some community member out of concern called 911 and then they get killed that reminds me there's a post going around um right now like i think on like twitter about how the either original writer or director of ed ed and eddie was murdered by the police while actively in psychosis 10 years ago jesus christ yeah like he somebody did a welfare call on him i believe because he was acting erratically in public and if i recall the post correctly like he was trying to surrender himself and they shot him if it's not him that that happened to that must have been somebody something that happened to someone very recently and it's just very telling that all of these police murders have just blended into like just one in my brain (laughs) The whole of like psychiatry is a form of mass social control. And so mm-hmm. like for your garden variety going to the psychiatrist and going to the therapist or whatever, it's like mostly like, okay, middle-class ladies, like, you're sad. You need to go to the doctor so you, you can save your shitty marriage and like go to marriage counseling and like talk about your shitty job so you can go back to work and like cope with it. And then like, you know, men are starting to be included in this a little bit too. And like, um, I know that like gender non-conforming people have their own experiences with psychiatry and the patriarchy and stuff, but that's getting on a, a tangent. So like, so for the class nature, so like more middle-class people are like funnel still going to private practices. I know that the whole other group of like people that are forced into rehab and like psych units, like the dual, dual diagnosis psych units, um, instead of going to prison or after getting out of prison as part of the deal. And that's still a thing. Like, it's not really that different these days. I guess kind of the difference is anybody can go to the psych ward. The differences are just a technicality. I feel at this point, you know, sure. It's not exactly the same, but effectively and who can afford treatment as a whole other thing to what medicaid and medicare will pay for versus private insurance obviously the quality of care and the level of compassion is wildly different based on the institution that you go to mm-hmm. so psychiatry doesn't have a history of curing patients the numbers of insane quote-unquote as measured by psychiatric incarceration increased into the 20th century while curability rates or like the number of people that were discharged from the facilities were declining so by 19 so it was just like getting worse and nobody was like hey maybe we should stop doing this (laughs) for a long time so by 1955 over 550,000 people were incarcerated in these psychiatric institutions and at the time the average stage in a hospital was over 20 years now it's three days couple weeks 
So the hundred years between 1850 and 1950, there was a period of growth where other branches of medicine were making like giant leaps in innovation and ways of thinking about medicine and psychiatry made no noticeable progress whatsoever while developing a bunch of these physical treatments. Just on a little tangent here, when we talk about deinstitutionalization later, there was supposed to be a community mental health care system that was set up when people were released from these asylums, but that really never panned out. So actually the deinstitutionalization was more of a part of the cycle for homelessness and poverty, like perpetual poverty, generational poverty. So during that time period, how was medicine itself in general, like, you know, the other versions of medicine besides psychiatry, which isn't real medicine, in my opinion, and Cohen's opinion and every, <laughs> and our opinion, I guess, <laughs> pain or discomfort in itself um, wasn't any longer qualifying as a disease. So a pathology that was observable by tests had to be present to classify something as a disease. And that was the gold standard developed by Rudolf Virchow. And psychiatry like really tried its best to keep up with that. So Emil Kraplin, the father of modern psychiatry, documented observation. So remember, the people in the asylums were people that were like, quote unquote, social deviants that were economic burdens on their family, that were working class people that were not performing well at work or you know, women that were not good wives, quote unquote, those are the types of people that are being incarcerated in these asylums and traumatized. Emil documents observations of these asylum patients, which led him to theorize that mental disease was then caused by discrete physical pathways in the brain. So this is just like a theory um, that this guy made up. So let's be clear that the theory of the basic foundational theory of psychiatry is rooted in observing traumatized people who were captured in an effort to socially control the population during industrialization and eliminate deviants in an area in an era of really poor working and living conditions. Like we think about what the working conditions, like what it meant to be a worker during the 1800s and early 1900s. Um, so even so, no physical markers were even identified at that time. There was no definitive physical pathology. It did not, nothing in psychiatry was meeting the gold standard of what it even meant to have a disease. So of course, psychiatry then started experimenting on patients like to legitimize itself. Um, so torture was disguised as treatment. So Benjamin Rush, who signed the Declaration of Independence, this guy and was considered the father of American psychiatry, for example, developed a cure for madness in the 1890s in the form of a tranquilizer chair where people were basically immobilized and tied to this chair and restrained for so long that they like had a poop bucket under their butt and they were just there for hours and hours and hours. And this was supposed to calm patients through lessening the blood flow to the brain make them gentle and submissive. And like other examples were bloodletting, cold baths, spinning devices, considering calming treatment. I'm just thinking about potentially being put in that chair. And I'm just like, how could anyone ever think that that would calm another human? I would be absolutely enraged until I guess, I guess they want you to be mad until you're exhausted, like until you're physically exhausted. And then suddenly you're calm because you have no energy left. Mm Mm-hmm. You've completely dissociated from reality at that point. (laughs) 
Well, but I'm also thinking just like physically exhausted from like fighting to get out of the thing. Because I know if I was in, strapped in a chair like that, I would be tr- doing everything I could to get out. <laughs> I will physically fight you. It's, an, it's another old example of, you know, old white men thinking that the most convenient thing is science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a very colonialist. Uh, which, I mean, obviously, given that he signed the Declaration of Independence, you know, but I just mean, when I say colonialist, I mean that like a philosophy rather than like the actual person. It's a very, very European, colonized European way of approaching things. Sure. Yeah, like ignoring materialism and like, oh, there must be something that like we need to right. study. Like you don't like the king, so like it must be something wrong with you. Not that the king is taking all everyone's grain. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What does it even mean to have a, an effect? So we're talking about like scientific experimentation on these traumatized people that are <laughs> in these asylums. Um, to find effective treatments. Like what does it even mean to have like a, an effective psychiatric treatment? In the asylums, it would have meant that they were no longer being combative, that they were no longer being exhibiting behaviors that were considered problematic. Listening to this, it is not lost on me how similar it is to ABA and to conversion camp. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just thinking about that because like I've seen a lot of posts. I went to high school with a woman that, is now an ABA therapist. She posts a lot about the new and improved ABA. And every time she posts about it, I'm just like sitting there just like physically cringing out of my skin because I just want to just like rage post at her so much. We don't know each other like that anymore. So I'm not, but right now I'm like, she, there might come a day where she actually sees through the problems because I've seen her say stuff about like how you know, she's not like other ABA therapists. So she clearly sees a problem. She just is dissociating where there's a problem, but not with me. River says with the colonial thing to a lot of doctors went from how do we pacify the native population and then took these those answers to people they viewed as being low on the ladder of human dignity. I'm glad that you brought that perspective up. Yeah. I mean, like essentially an effective psychiatric treatment, like even today, even how doctors will describe it to you, you know, is like just something that calms you down, makes you more productive at work. And it, it really, there's, there's something so malevolent in how so much of psychiatric and well actually medicine in general the medical practice or uh, the medical industry in general is geared not to fixing the issue like i said before but to get you to be a productive human being and operating within the bounds of conventional society there's so many different roles that you can play in society but if you can't fit into any of those roles then you can either go to prison you can be homeless you can go to an a mental institution or wander off into the wilderness to live on your own and die yeah it's like exiling people Mm -hmm. so basically the whole development of psychiatry is an effort to legitimize itself cure 
curability rates obviously continued to drop in. So in walks Freud in the 20th century with the concept of dynamic psychiatry, which we didn't really talk very much about in the chapter. During that period of time, psychiatry started renaming things to appear more medical. So they started calling asylums hospitals. Psychiatrists actually used to be called alienists. Fun fact, they started like incorporating the use of ambulances, drugs, surgery, developing new treatments like lobotomies that worked because they caused brain damage, not because they treated an underlying cause of anything. Physical therapy, quote unquote, was also developed to produce more permanent effects. Cohen emphasizes brain damage, you know, uh, including um, ECT and lobotomy, uh, which are both used in modified forms today. These treatments were considered effective because they did modify inappropriate behavior, leading to more productivity in the family and labor force. And eventually psychotropic medication became the initial line of defense, which replaced ECT and psychosurgery with similar. ECT was developed by this Italian guy, Ugo Cerletti, who was visiting. uh, So he got the idea because he he was just like out and about and visited a local slaughterhouse to see how they uh, made pigs manageable to kill. And they were, um, stunning them with electricity. And so he had this light bulb moment and ECT leads to a known effect of permanent brain dysfunction and a higher risk of death. While there's still no clear evidence as to how it actually works on the body. It was used by Nazis and concentration camps to manage populations. Um, and also lowers intellect. Cool. We live in a cool country. <laughs> right. Thorazine. Um, it's the best country in the world. Don't you forget it. America. Exactly. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Coming again to save the motherfucking day. Yeah. You know how like, um, oh, I don't even know what it's from. That, But that gif where it's like, are we the baddies? Yes. <laughs> Every single time like I, re- I learn anything literally anything about anything the U.S. has ever been involved in I am just like how does I mean I know how like I know how in like the general population but I don't understand how people in power can even know a fraction of what we know and that they know and still go we're the good guys. Like right. it is just they have an excellent spin manager the, the yeah. person managing you know all the spin for their PR like they both do and don't deserve a race at the exact same time. The mental gymnastics that one must have to go through, even like with like the worst, most conservative worldviews, um, like it just does not come close to computing in my brain. Well, I think if somebody posted like a tweet from, I think it was like Joey on Twitter, that was people who study history either become radicals, depressed or liars or something to that effect. Correct. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, So in the 1950s, that's when there was this blockbuster moment where Thorazine was the first psych med on the market. So to get to that point, psychiatrists experimented with poisoning patients with camphor and metrazole. They also tried injecting people with a bunch of insulin to cause seizures and comas. And people were like, yeah. (laughs) No, the U.S. wouldn't do that. No way. So people were like, fuck yeah, (laughs) this is great because the patients are quieter. Right. Oh, my God. 
And those treatments, again, resulted in brain damage and sometimes death. There is evidence that psychiatry targets highly intelligent people, which makes a lot of sense. The ECT pioneer, Dr. Abraham Meyerson, stated that ECT candidates have more intelligence than they can handle and that some of the very best uh, cures are in individuals who are reduced to amnesia. Sorry, I'm missing some things that River said. Okay. River says, as with what Leo said about productivity being the indicator of successful treatment, there's a reason chemical treatment avoids compounds that deliver a sense of satisfaction or safety, even when they don't carry large potential for addiction, which itself is treated as something which inherently legitimizes a medication. True. So ECT is also now being uh, used as a breakthrough treatment for depressed people and autistic people and deviant young people. Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. The less intense, quote unquote, (laughs) ECT, where it's like, well, it's the nicer version, so it's fine. Yeah, it only causes like a little bit of brain damage. And I'm like, of course, the incentive is that people don't have high intelligence because at least like working class people with high intelligence are, you know, we're pathologized. Whereas like if you're born into like a a higher class, that's celebrated and like encouraged, like think about things. Sure. Psycho, we get into psychosurgery, which is the really fucked up part. (laughs) We haven't even gotten there yet. Psychosurgery was a form of massive oppressive social control. So over 40,000 people were victims of psychosurgeries like lobotomies in the mid 20th century US. 12% of those people died and only 23% of them ever left the hospital. So it sounds very effective. The lobotomy was developed by drilling holes into women's brains and squirting alcohol into the brain. In 1936, Igas Moniz uh, advertised the procedure as showing marked improvements and making patients less emotional because women shouldn't have feelings. In the 40s and 50s, uh, Walter Freeman, a psychiatrist who had no, no formal training in surgery, or qualifications to perform those procedures whatsoever made the procedure popular using it on wives who were too dominant and too much of a bitch. And that is like from the book. I'm not even like making that up. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked a lot about how psychiatry treats cis men, women, and people who are gender nonconforming differently and we've talked a little bit about different races is there anything anybody wants to say about any of that in talking about medicine i think it should always be brought up about how medicine is basically tested on lower class or more marginalized classes Mm-hmm. before it's brought up to white people, to say the least. There's the Tuskegee experiments. So much of medicine is has been tested out on indigenous people, black people, incarcerated and people. incarcerated people, and the uh, before before it's brought up for the, the general class and for everything that m- actually made it into the history books like lobotomies there's got to be at least a dozen treatments that were experimented with mm-hmm. but not 
recorded with all the uh, concreteness or with all the permanence that things like lobotomy were written with and the inhumanity that those people had to suffer before they even tried those other quote unquote more humane treatments 1000% i'm i'm really glad that you brought that up i think too uh one point that i had thought about is like men so again if psychiatry is trying to treat illness uh obviously the fatal one would be the you know what we would go after so it would be trying to prevent suicide men have much higher rates of suicide, three to four times the rate of women in Western, in the Western world. But women are the ones that are constantly like gaslit and like gender nonconforming people and, you know, non-cis men in general are made to believe that like we're, we need to go to treatment and we might actively seek treatment because we don't want to suffer. And there's a lot of gender theory behind all of that too. The point is, it's very obvious that psychiatry isn't trying to prevent suicide really when it's like essentially marketed to women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, one other point here was that it was Black people in general and women were both targets, were all targets of um, lobotomies during that period. And they were used for political repression specifically as well, which is evidenced in the case of Francis Farmer, who was left-wing filmmaker, who was committed to Washington State Hospital in 1944 for, quote-unquote, drinking, smoking, swearing, and having sex with men. So like a Tuesday night for me. They were also used on housewives who were growing unhappy, and it was even suggested into the late or as late as the 80s to keep doing that. Any innovations were developed for cost-cutting and profit-maximizing reasons. One innovation was the transorbital lobotomy, which used no anesthetic whatsoever. So it shocked somebody three times with ECT uh, to like calm them down or whatever, and then attacked the frontal lobe by using an ice pick that was not sterilized because it was a waste of time to sterilize the ice pick above each eye and like the orbital socket and then driving that seven or seven centimeters into the brain. People that were lobotomized, poets would be lobotomized and they couldn't write poetry anymore. I mean, they could do little more than giggle. And often these lobotomies were used as punishment for unruly behavior in psych wards. Freeman himself operated on 11 kids in the 1950s to smash the world of fantasy and cut down on emotional interest redirecting behavior into socially acceptable channels and then two of those kids died so by the 60s this guy had killed enough people that he was banned from performing procedures but they like let him go on for a while in the 70s psychiatrists suggested targeting black people for psychosurgeries and in the 1980s they suggested it for anorexia adhd and autism very cool Economic motives to continue experiment, experimentation on controlling deviant populations included cheaper forms of care that could then be performed outside of the hospital and basically having the funding to sustain psychiatry and psychiatric institutions. So, okay, like the next chapter or the next section is the drugs revolution. I know we've like talked a lot about it. Does anyone want to talk about impact that psych meds have had on you or loved ones? Oh, sorry. I just want to 
talk to River's point, um, one of the reasons natives didn't get targeted for as much brain treatment is that we weren't seen as having similar enough brains to be used, which is totally fucked. Jesus Christ. Drugs revolution. Any comments about psych meds in general? Generally not a fan, except for like whenever I like have an acute problem, like I'm having an anxiety attack or something. And I just like need to like stop it like in the moment. That's about as much as I will utilize anymore just because everything that I've ever tried always just makes me feel numb and then I'm always made to feel like well you just need to give it a little bit longer it'll be fine it you know this is all normal feeling like a numb robot is normal I'm I'm only just now reintroducing myself to uh psych meds and basically that's just because I'm sort of going through a little bit of a rough patch right now but it's not anything that I want to stay on well that's what i mean by like something acute like you know you're actively going through something and you would like to not be a blubbering mess the entire time that's very understandable yeah uh, like i was saying before you know they make me tired i i get that numbness and then on top of all that it just absolutely kills my sex drive yeah river says i mean i've been on dexedrine since i was six so literally my entire personality developed under it difficult to parse what is what it is most responsible for but i think we talked earlier um about about the segments i was on antidepressants of different kinds and like different mood stabilizers and shit for a long time and like leo like you were saying earlier i don't remember a lot of those years river like you're saying i'm totally like i feel like i'm totally different off of them now and the the antidepressants definitely caused me to have obsessive suicidal thoughts and i don't have that anymore not being on them i do take adderall but i think it like leads to some aggressive behavior too so it does alter your personality and like how you think and i think largely the point of them is to have like a tranquilizing effect basically right you saying that reminded me whenever i was on stratera one of the side effects that like one of the common side effects that's listed is easy irritability and i don't remember the exact phrase but it's like something about like just like being like very hot tempered and i noticed that difference within like under two weeks like i could tell that just like things that would normally just irritate me a little bit would just like make me want to like fly into this raid you know how like whenever old people smack their lips because they're dry you know how like it normally just is annoying and you're like i have to get away this was like if i don't get away someone will die in the next five seconds and i was just like oh no this is bad but my doctor was just like well you know that goes away after a while and i'm like okay so i'm just supposed to like sit here and live with this unquenchable rage all the time how is that good for my anything in my life yeah I've definitely noticed it too it's managing it is so hard too and I've like brought it up to my therapists and stuff and it's like use mindfulness techniques <laughs> I don't know mm-hmm. God, I'm so sick of hearing about mindfulness techniques have you seen that now people are using mindfulness to dissociate from their bad decisions and like it's leading to more extremely problematic behaviors. I have not heard about that, but that is horrifying. <laughs> I can actually yeah. give some examples from my personal life. I choose not yeah. to. Maybe, maybe not for the podcast. Maybe, maybe we'll talk that talk about it another time. So River was saying, I have this profound feeling of having nothing in common of myself when I'm off 
the meds to where I'm not functional. Sensory, sensory agitation stuff on simulants sucks. And as a Buddhist, I am always utterly exhausted with the supremacy of mindfulness. I kind of want to hear more about that. <laughs> about the supremacy of mindfulness? Yeah. From me or from um, Bethany? From you. Just like... This when I was saying earlier that like there are more saleable parts of Buddhist practice, mindfulness is like the most easily packaged because it has this really, you know, oh, just be mindful of your surroundings and like kind of let go and just experience things as they are and it'll all be okay. It is, it's basically like a tranquilizer where you're experiencing like profound rage at something. And if you go into a meditative state about that, you're basically like delegitimizing that rage because you're taking a very, you're taking like a, a conclusive, you're saying, I want to feel this way about it by default. And then you're forcing yourself to feel that way. But there are so many other aspects of like Buddhism, non-self or self-annihilation. That's really not something westerners like because the self is the center of everything and the individual and when you get into practices like that and being like okay well you have profound rage um whose rage is it really and you ask someone living under capitalism about that and they're like um well i don't really have time to think about that i have bills to pay and shit to do and just mindfulness becomes this tool of the individual i think i know what you're getting at though it, it becomes like this tool for whatever you're angry at it becomes this tool for you to allow that to happen exactly. to you exactly and it individualizes you, the problem and then tells you the problem isn't with whatever the problem is it's just with your response to it like with you having feelings about it yes exactly that's not to say it isn't helpful but it, it is used to like cope with suffering and like yeah individualizes things and so the thing that uh was recently coming out was like people making really morally questionable financial decisions and then like like people working say like on wall street making really morally ethically questionable financial choices and then using mindfulness to just brush that that feeling aside of like am i am i the baddie and then like other instances of people doing effectively the same with various types of assault and it was just like i can see how that would be done just because like i can see like a like in ca this capitalist society where everybody feels like you know they're entitled to do whatever because you know this is a quote-unquote free society and free country you know that they will just do whatever and then justify it by well i well i'm a i'm i'm a citizen so i'm allowed to do whatever and you're not a citizen so fuck you and it doesn't really count as you being a human because you're not one of me so you know and then we'll just use mindfulness to get the little like wiggle in their brain that's like mm, maybe not we'll uh -huh. use that to shut up that little wiggle yeah Exactly. Like uh, mindfulness with a lot of the other um, disciplines was originally conceived as a way to kind of break habitualistic thinking and behavior. So like mm -hmm. you're not doing this selfish thing thinking I, 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 you get into like a mindful, like self decentering point so that you think about, do I want to be that I, do I want to be behaving as if I am that person versus nowadays it becoming this like well 
everyone suffers and suffering is an innate part of the world and just being human. So what difference does it really make if I am a cause of suffering for other people? If they were as mindful about it as I am, then they could just let go of it too. Yeah. And it's also like coming from that moral perspective of like feelings bad too. Like exactly like where, how dare you have feelings, make them go away. Right. So um, we're talking about drugs. <laughs> so drugs are being prescribed at exorbitant rates while profits are exploding. There's some stats in the book. I don't feel like looking it up right now. Psychiatrists are medicalizing everyday behaviors as mental illness. So including hoarding, drinking, gaming, grieving, gambling, and then prescribing drugs. I don't think drugs is going to help you with your hoarding issue. Call me crazy, but like there's probably some other way to deal with it. There's no magic bullet treatment and there cannot be for mental disorder since etiology has not been established, which we talked about that being like the causality in the pathway. So therefore drug treatments are a continuation of the methods of social control, um, including lobotomies and that line of the treatment development, and they help legitimize the field of psychiatry through medicalization. So psychotropic drug culture helps the psy profession surveil, monitor, and morally manage the general population. Thorazine was considered the first uh, psychopharmaceutical drug that worked in the 50s and helped to lead to deinstitutionalization. There's still no evidence that the new drugs were any more useful than the physical treatments and either treating an underlying cause or in terms of harm reduction for patients. It wasn't even developed on purpose to treat anything. Thorazine wasn't. It was developed as an anesthetic for major operation. And through that research, it was discovered that it was basically a lobotomy in pill form. So everybody was like, oh, great. This is like so much cheaper than having to perform surgery. So the success of Thorazine was economic and not therapeutic um right. and you say the success of th- and the cost of surgery and i'm like they didn't even like fucking sterilize the needles how expensive could, could a lobotomy have possibly been <laughs> well you know the doctor's time they're very important people right adjusted for inflation you know a lobotomy now is probably like a hundred and fifty thousand dollar procedure from a licensed professional you know we could probably estimate it at like thousand dollars back then maybe Uh. (laughs) said imagine an anesthetician being your therapist Right. Everything is so horrifying. So like this is further evidence that it was not therapeutically successful because in the U.S. they were like fuck yeah we can just send people home and like give them pills and so like there was a fast decline in asylum populations and that was much more accelerated than in Europe that that took many many years to reach the same level of deinstitutionalization once the regime was introduced to the market and again no disease was treated or cured with the pill leading to substantial profit for the pharmaceutical companies who can make money in perpetuity from these prescriptions while cutting funding of the expensive institutions. And there's really no community support system again that's set up. So the drug revolution is a a success for welfare capitalism where institutional costs were transformed into corporate profit. Um, So notably in the early days prior to the 50s, drugging patients was considered an embarrassment to society. There was an active resistance or to psychiatry, sorry, there was active resistance in the profession against drugging patients because there were 
people that were becoming conscious that were like, I don't really know that this is really even a disease. So why would we be giving people medication? And as SSRIs have been developed, evidence shows that these drugs don't work. <laughs> Irving Kirsch did a systematic review of Prozac in 2009 that concluded the drug wasn't any more effective than placebo. In the same year, um, another scientist or like a psychologist, Moncrief, did a study on a variety of antidepressants and stimulants that concluded that psychiatric drug treatment is administered on the basis of a collective myth, which is that of a chemical imbalance. So Moncrief goes on to say that no bio, no biochemical imbalances have ever been documented with certainty in association with any psychiatric diagnosis. Ronald Pies or Pease, editor-in-chief of the Psychiatric Times said in 2011 that the chemical imbalance notion was always an urban legend, never a theory that was even seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists, which is crazy because you post anything about anything related to this on the internet and people are like, it's a chemical imbalance and like psychiatrists don't even believe that like Mm -hmm. and I've heard that from like doctors and therapists and like all kinds of other medical professionals so much of my adult life and just knowing that this has been out there for over 10 years where they're like "Mm, actually no is just really upsetting. It's just a load of bullshit. Uh-huh. And like, you can't even talk should, about it. We should throw it all away and start, start over. Can we just throw everything away and start over? I mean, yeah. some countries do. Every few years, they they throw away all their documents, archive them, and then start over. What a novel concept. Right. There was a wild lobbyist take to discredit those analyses, uh, River said which I do not disbelieve at all. So the analysis is about Prozac and the meds. Personally, I believe that psychiatry is a form a, of social control. It's it's not even a belief. It's just a fact. It's like how the profession developed and they have used different forms of torture and methods to damage for people's brains to make us compliant in this horrifying system. <laughs> over time and drugs are the modern way to do that and yeah they can be used responsibly and in helpful ways and like shit maybe you want to take the drugs because that makes you feel better but it's important to realize that that's what they exist for <laughs> my like the point is that you're sad the point yeah. is that you're unhappy the, the literal point is that you are sad and unhappy and you have internalized this whole, you know, I'm sad and unhappy. So it must be, there must be something wrong with me. And then nobody wants to go out and maybe try and fix things because they're like, well, it's just me. I'm just broken. No, you're really not. Like you're just in a broken society. Sure. Oh, I talk- River said it's like the good cop thing. The system is fucked. Does it doesn't matter what accidental good effects it has. Any last comments? Say? On the historical materialism of psychiatry. No. Nope. Everything is horrible. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say everything is horrible. I mean, y'all are pretty pretty cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, well, aside from us amazing humans. Um... The fact that everything is horrible has brought, you know, the four of us together tonight. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm just like... 
it's it's like how uh whenever i look at like any climate news i'm like oh everything is horrifying like if i don't laugh i will cry mm-hmm. like, exactly. <laughs> like i i appreciate I, your I, w- I was just gonna say i appreciate leo's optimism and like positivity in these trying times <laughs> <laughs> and boy are they trying <laughs> <laughs> The day the Rio Grande uh, went viral for drying up, I cried like the entire day. I just was like absolutely beside myself. And everybody's like, everybody else that I know was like, well, if there's nothing you can do about it, why are you so sad? And I'm like, how do I explain to you that I'm sad for like everything in existence? I don't know how to put that into words. Sorry. No, the Rio Grande thing is like, because I live here. I have to live by that river. Fuck you guys. Wait a second. Where are you from? New Mexico. New Mexico? Okay, okay, wow. Wow, so we have three Southerners in this chat right now. That is absolutely bonkers. Hey, I count. I uh, (laughs) I lived in Kentucky and Missouri. And Maryland is, like, technically, I think, Southern. No, uh, because I'm pretty sure that the Mason-Dixon line ended at Virginia. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm like, mm, no, but, I don't know. Wait a second. We'll talk Collie. about that here. But okay, Kali, you're originally from Kentucky. I'm originally from Cincinnati, but then I lived in Kentucky for. A oh while. yeah, Cincinnati's definitely the South. Yeah, you're you're with all of us then. <laughs> <laughs> Cincinnati isn't the South, but Kentucky is. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Leo and I are like, ma'am, <laughs> ma'am. Mm-hmm. Bonus content. <laughs> Bonus content. I do agree, though, that it's really nice to talk to you all. Like, I, I know that we talked about a lot of really shitty things, but, like, it's good that, like, we can talk about it together. And also that, like, I kind of personally had a really shitty day, and it's just nice to talk to you. I can definitely understand that. It's it's been great talking to all of y'all. I feel like I definitely got a lot out of this tonight. And I can't wait to do the next one. And I promise I'm gonna read the right chapter this time, I swear. Just re-review chapter three. And uh, I, that's exactly what I'm gonna do. You can make the gu- discussion guide and facilitate the discussion. Anybody else is <laughs> will it, like anybody who wants to do the discussion guy like either next time or any other time like feel free to do it like <laughs> don't look at me okay. <laughs> I'm not trying to like capitalize the combo like do not ever look at me to have things done in a responsible and timely manner especially right now but sure. i will remember to do it when i do it and then it might be in six months i mean you know we the four of us we know why we're all here you know, talking to each other tonight, but, you know, on a, on a different level, the reason that we're all here talking tonight is because on some level, we understand that we like talking to people that we have a uh, similar understanding of the way that the world works. We, we have this thing that makes the world make sense to us. And that's Mm -hmm. what the four of us have in common yeah Mm -hmm. and the fact that we're talking to each other on some level is indicative of us each having hope exactly across hundreds and hundreds of miles we're here for i very much 
I very much well, ascribe yeah. to the um, the philosophy of Allison from Red Menace, where she's like, uh, well, I guess it's a friend of hers, but still, where she's like, you know, don't go give in to doomerism. Um, you know, even if we lose all these reciprocal cycles within like the global climate, nothing says that that's going to kill every single human on the planet. Nothing says that that's going to kill every single bit of plant and animal life and even if it does like even if that is like the worst case scenario humanity and life itself still deserves some kind of palliative care and just going in full bore capitalism like into all this horribleness is not palliative care it's just making it actively work the same way that you would give palliative care to an elder like humanity at least deserves that because as horrible as so many people are that is not the majority of people and like we all deserve like some form of comfort in our end undoubtedly i completely agree with that thank you ditto that's worth fighting for yeah, like we are, like everything is worth making the effort and at least trying to make the the end of things as we know it less terrible for those that will come after and those that have to endure it rather than just accept it and just passively go, eh, well, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Sure. I would rather remain as myself in defeat than become a monster in victory. I don't know who that's by, but yeah. Well, y'all are lovely people. Thank you so much for joining and all of your thoughts. Of course. Thank I'm you right. for facilitating. Absolutely. I, I, again, well, I feel like guys. I definitely learned a lot tonight. I, I definitely, it was important for me to hear viewpoints that I didn't think of myself. Same. I love that kind of shit. Hmm. All the warm fuzzies. <laughs> and I can't wait to do it again. Yeah, I'm really excited for next week or whenever the next is.